Hey, Corey here, and this is Everything is Marketing. Other marketing podcasts might give you the highlight reel or focus on a particular industry, strategy, or tactic, but this podcast explores marketing from every angle and allows you to get inside the head of the guest to really understand who they are and how they think. SavvyCal is a new scheduling tool that helps you optimize your calendar to do your best work. Let's face it, most 30-minute meetings could have been 15 minutes instead, and most 60-minute meetings could have been 30 minutes instead. With SavvyCal, you can offer multiple meeting durations on the same scheduling link so recipients can book as little or as much time as they need with you. Create a free account at SavvyCal.com EIM, and you can also get your first month of a paid account free by using the code EIM. On the show today is Melanie Diesel. Melanie is the Director of Content at Foundation and author of the Content Fuel Framework. She's an international keynote speaker and is recognized as one of the world's leading experts in native advertising and branded content. I wanted to bring her on because Melanie has worked on content uh, with some really amazing brands. I mean, she's done content for the New York Times T Brand Studio. She helped found the HuffPost Partner Studio and served as the Director of Creative Strategy for Time Inc.'s portfolio of 35 media properties. And she also served as expert in residence at Gary V's Brave Ventures. Melanie knows content. So you'll hear about the 10 different focuses of content that resonate and how to tailor them across 10 different formats, how to generate unlimited content ideas, and the unique ways to repurpose your content. So to start out, I love asking my guests, did you ever think you'd be doing content marketing for a living? No, absolutely not. <laughs> I didn't even know it was a thing. <laughs> I, I have wanted to be a journalist and a writer since I was like very, very young. I was one of those like, you know, editor of my middle school yearbook and then my high school newspaper and then my college newspaper, like that was me. So I definitely thought I was going to end up in journalism, working in a newsroom somewhere, you know, uncovering embezzlement and, and all kinds of, you know, hard news stuff. And that's, uh, that's not how it panned out. But I, I use a lot of the same skills, honestly, so it doesn't, it doesn't feel horrible. But no, I definitely, definitely couldn't have planned this out ahead of time. Yeah. <laughs> I have to say, I think a lot of the the smartest slash best marketers I know have some sort of journalist, uh, journalism background for whatever reason, maybe it's because of those skills that you pick up or just the experience, or maybe it's, you know, the indoctrination of how you're, how you think and how you write and sort of what you're looking for. But you did actually have some journalism experience. And I was looking through and kind of doing some research on your background, you know, doing things like uh, Rolling Stone, you have this news house project, uh, working at the New York Times. Like, could you walk me through <laughs> some of the kind of stops along the way to how you yeah. got to where you are today? Yeah, so the New York Times was actually in a, in a marketing capacity too, believe it or not. I was uh, there as the, the first editor of branded content that they had ever hired. So it was just when they were getting into branded content as a service. So we were selling, you know, basically a, a specialized team would create branded content for our brand partners that lived on uh, New York Times website. So we were completely separate from the newsroom. Like I, I I say this jokingly, but it's also like, it's true. We literally had separate elevators, like business and <laughs> advertising people on one side and like a separate elevator that went to the the news floors, right? We were that separate. The only floor that both elevators went to was the cafeteria. It was like the neutral neutral ground in the middle. But yeah, we were, it, it was always an interesting experience for me, I think, because I, I had always dreamed of working at the New York Times. I think a lot of journalists do, I certainly did. Uh, but to be there, not in the newsroom and in the in a marketing capacity, working for our ad team, obviously not how, like we said, not what I had pictured, not how I imagined being there. But I think it also gave me it it gave me a, a different perspective in that 
I understood what was happening on those other floors and I understood that the work we were doing in the advertising team and on the marketing team is what was keeping the lights on and, and helping those folks continue to do their really important work. But it also like I had such reverence for the brand, like I respected the New York Times as a brand. So it it was easy for me to like hold my ground when I felt like this is an important thing we need to do, or this is a line I don't think we should cross, or that's just a little too much branding. It gave me more fire to be able to say like, no, this is, we have to maintain these standards and, and I know what they're expecting from us and we need, you know, the, the standards are high. So uh, I think even though I never imagined being there on, on the business floors, I thought I'd be in the other elevator, but I think it, it was a useful, useful detour you know, to have, have had that, that background to, to understand where we fit into the whole ecosystem. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And you were still there, right? I mean, it's still invaluable yeah. experience to still get the New York times sort of, uh, brand halo effect a little bit. What were some of the other stops along the way and, you know, things that you picked up along the way to get you to where you are now? Yeah, so I, I also spent some time at HuffPost before I was at the Times, actually, and that was really interesting because, you know, it was the early days of HuffPost. Like, we, I mean, we were we were still a, a fairly large group, but it was very much a startup culture. Like, it was all about the snacks, and everybody was very casually dressed, and like, you know, they had massage massages happening, and like, it's manicure day, or you know, who knew? Who knew? There was always something crazy happening. Dogs walking through the office, so it was kind of fun to work in an environment like that. I think since I was coming from journalism, like we take ourselves or tend to take ourselves super, super seriously. My education in journalism and, and my early experiences were all really old school print folks. Like, you know, the, the kind of folks you see in the movie spotlight, like the, the old school reporters. Right. So it was kind of fun for me to, to be able to see, to see the work we were creating as something fun, something we were experimenting with, something that could be could be tweaked and played with versus this is like hard and fast, it has to be this, it has to be out at this exact minute, you know. It was nice to have a little bit of freedom to play and explore. And it was also the first time, honestly, I had access to the kind of data and reporting that we had on our content because it was so, I mean, they were digital from the start. So you look at a lot of newspapers or, or news organizations, they started out somewhere else and like digital was largely taken on as like a Band-Aid and, and chewing gum stick on like if we have to before we realize this is the future. So this was like the first time I was working in an organization that was digital first and like really had all the analytics uh, and measurement to back everything up. So, you know, I, I, I was really interested in in-depth reporting because I like to play with the data. So to have that analytics data to look at and to be able to dive in and say, okay, you know, I was almost investigating our own content, you know, why is this working? Why is this not working? What can we do to make it better? When we look at the things that are working, why are they uh, working better? You know, it was kind of a, a fun experiment for me to look at that data and to see what can we learn from that. But, you know, it was also a chance to, to just play. You know, I when I worked at the New York Times, I, I got to work on some amazing pieces. You know, I worked on, on really serious topics, you know, recidivism in women's prisons and like, you know, all these all these huge topics. But like, when I worked at HuffPost, I got to ghostwrite a blog post as Ron Burgundy from Anchorman. Like that is mm. not as serious and impactful to the world, but it was a lot of fun, you know? So yeah. it was it was kind of cool to have had both of those very different experiences and to go from one to the other, to start at HuffPost where everything was free and then go to the more like polished, you know, kind of work that we were doing at the times. I'm really grateful that I got to see both sides of that for sure. Mm -hmm. well, anything uh, stand out to you as 
you know, an interesting experience or brand that you worked with or a story that you investigated even on, on your own end where, you know, maybe you changed something, you made a tweak, you took it to someone else and said, hey, you know, this is, this is something interesting here. We should do X, Y, and Z. Yeah. So there's, uh, I mean, there's a number of pieces that, you know, I was really proud of the work we did at the, the New York Times. We won a bunch of awards, you know, really privileged to work with a bunch of really talented creators there. So we were able to do top-notch work. I talk about those examples a lot, you know, in particular, one we did with Netflix for Orange is the New Black. That's sort of like our, our free bird, like we're still talking about it all these years later. It was a, was a big win for us. But the sort of behind the scenes element of, of why it was important for me is I... So I, I mentioned before I had such reverence for the New York Times brand. I really respected David Carr in particular. He was the the media critic. He wrote about the media industry. And I had seen the movie Page One, which is like all about the New York Times and, and how things go inside. And I idolized him. I wanted to be best friends with David Carr. This was like my secret mission. Uh, you know, once I got there, like, we're going to be friends. I'm going to make it happen somehow. And so, you know, I had I had reached out. It was, like I said, very separate, sort of church and state, keeping the, the ad folks and the newsroom folks apart. So it was, a, it was kept, you know, tricky territory, but I did send him a note and ask if, you know, given his experience in the media industry, did he have any advice for how I could avoid, you know, basically driving our, our team into the ground? You know, how can I protect the Times brand? What advice might he have? So he never talked about clients or like any work specifically, but more from an operational standpoint, you know, how could we make sure we were being having integrity? How could we make sure we were sourcing the way the newsroom does? You know, things like that. And, uh, you know, we had that, we had a couple conversations like that. We would meet up in the cafeteria and chat and whatnot. But when we published that Netflix piece, I had sent him the link just to say, like, I think this particular piece, like, I think we lived up to the standards this time. Like, I think we really did it, you know? I was really proud of it. So I sent him the link in email and he didn't email me back. And I was, like, really nervous thinking, like, oh, man, I thought we did well. Like, maybe this isn't as good as I thought. Um, but he actually, he tweeted the link publicly instead of talking to me about it, he tweeted uh, praise for it from, you know, from his massive account with all these followers saying like, you know, my colleague, he tagged me in it, like did great work on the, you know, on the advertising side. So for me, that was like, it was, yeah, that was, that was the moment where I felt like, okay, like we are making a difference in some way. Like someone with an opinion that I really respect has said that we did good work and we did it by maintaining journalistic standards. So, um, I think when you go from journalism uh, to marketing, which, like you said, happens a lot, there is at least this tiny part of you that feels like like you sold out, you know, like because journalism is supposed mm -hmm. to be this like noble thing, uh, you know, the voice for the voiceless and, and uncovering wrongdoing and standing up for the little guy. Uh, and then marketing is like pretty much the opposite, right? Not saying one is better or worse, but just like from an, our goals standpoint, they're just different. And so there is a little part of you that's like, oh man, like I could have been doing this really impactful work and now I'm doing commercial work. But I think for me, that was the moment where I could really connect the dots and say, I might be working for a brand, I might be making paid content, but we're making really good stuff. We're making stuff that, that journalists can be proud to be associated with. We're making stuff that, you know, we're not disappointing our colleagues. Uh, so for me, that was, that was a big win and it was sort of validation of what I thought, which is, you know, doing this in a journalistic way is, is probably the best way to go. Like if we wanna make mm. stuff that our readers love, let's model it after stuff that our readers love. Yeah. Right. Taking journalism into marketing a bit yeah, and, uh, and really, really leaning into a lot of those 
uh, principles and kind of fundamental elements that make journalism great and and what the what's the appeal there and it seemed like you really kept leaning into that because uh, I have to also touch on you know your experience with Time Inc and their portfolio of companies yeah as well as being the expert in residence which is not a, a, a title anyone can tout for <laughs> Gary V's Brave Ventures yeah what were those experiences like yeah, so Time Inc. was really interesting. You know, like I said, I had started at HuffPost, which was digital first. I went to the Times, which is obviously a legacy news publication. Time Incorporated is a, is a magazine company. And you may not be familiar with Time Inc. as a company, but you definitely know the brands that at least were theirs at the time. They've since been sold off. But, you know, Time, People, Entertainment Weekly, Fortune, Golf, Money, you know, my recipes, Coastal Living, like, I mean, they have some some huge brands under under that huge. name. So it was interesting in that I was getting to play with brand voices and, you know, publication voices that I hadn't before. But I, I worked as a director of creative strategy. So essentially, similar to what I was doing at the Times, I was overseeing the, the content strategy programs across all of our, our 35 U.S. brands. But it was really interesting from a creative standpoint. I really liked the challenge of trying to find the very tiny sliver of overlap between something that we would do in InStyle magazine and something we would do in golf or Fortune, right? Like trying to find these, these different brands with different audiences and different voices and different topics. Where is the place where I can tell a story that's going to appeal to both of these groups or something that, that makes sense in both contexts. It was challenging, but it was really fun from a creative standpoint because it was like solving a, a unique creative problem every day, you know? So I, I really enjoyed that aspect of it. And uh, yeah, after I, I left Time Inc., I, I, what I did is I, I started my own consulting firm called Story Fuel. And as part of that, I was serving as, as expert in residence with Brave Ventures. And so Brave Ventures was, yeah, the, the V in Brave is for, for Vaynerchuk. So that was Gary's sort of a hybrid advisory and investment arm where basically we would, you know, we would invest and in, I wasn't, but I was part of the team, you know, they would invest in companies that were in the media space. So they might be doing analytics for social media or, you know, uh, new measurement, new ways of measuring live video, you know, really innovative media companies. And then we were advising sort of the old guard. So we were advising a lot of the like legacy broadcast networks and, and some bigger media companies. So it was sort of this two-sided thing where we could serve one another, that the the power of these legacy companies and what we were learning could inform what some of our startups were doing and the startups, you know, innovation could sort of feed into what these these bigger companies were doing. So I was focused exclusively on branded content. So anytime any of these companies were trying to create sponsored placements or, uh, you know, needed to be trained internally on how to do branded content, they wanted to start selling content as a product. That was, that was all my realm. It was definitely really interesting. We did not work day to day with Gary. You know, I always, always clarify that he was over, he was over at the Vayner offices and we were, we were in our own little office near Times Square. So, so definitely a, a different group, but that that spirit and that ethos of like move fast break things try it you know fail fast all that definitely you know carried over that was a, that was a shared feature between both mm -hmm. yeah that, that was what was gonna kind of pop in my head as you were going through that was just having both sides of the table and sort of both ends of the spectrum with sort of the old you know incumbents and then you have sort of the new startups and each have their own set of challenges and assumptions and things they come to the table with and both also have you know maybe the the gaps right and the pieces where they need help and i think that uh the maybe the themes could be obvious you know presuming you know like the old incumbents maybe aren't digital first maybe they don't have all the analytics they're not thinking about sort of the new wave of of content and how people consume things 
maybe the startups don't have as much experience and sort of breadth and of the knowledge and industry. But I don't want to assume that. Like, what were some of the big themes from each side of the table? Yeah, for sure. You're, you're spot on. You know, keeping everything under NDA that needs to be under NDA, I think that the big themes that you called upon are, are exactly right. You know, it's sort of the, the idea of, you know, they have mentorship where younger younger folks are getting all the wisdom of, of folks who are further ahead. Then you have that reverse mentorship model where someone who's been doing this something the same way for a long time has sort of a, a younger or like newer, you know, person to, to act as an example of how things can be done now. So we did see a lot of that. Um, you know, I think when you have a, a newer company, a new startup, you know, you're often looking for scale and exposure that is difficult and or expensive to get on your own in, in a silo. And so if you can provide something of value to a large company, that often will help you get a, a big step up right away, right? A lot of exposure right away and, and vice versa. You know, if you're bringing these innovative entrepreneurs internally to help with a, you know, a measurement problem or a content problem or something else, you know, you're going to start to think of how that might apply to other parts of your business and, and look for new opportunities to innovate. One of the mm-hmm. things that was really cool for us was watching some of our portfolio companies get acquired, not typically by our, our advisory clients, but watching them get acquired by similar companies, seeing that, you know, they had proven their value and, and watching them get to go on and, and be these sort of entrepreneurs within these, you know, little pockets of entrepreneurs within these bigger companies. And then ultimately Brave Ventures itself was acquired by Turner. So we definitely mm-hmm. sort of, it was a very cyclical ecosystem of like media companies advising media companies who invest in media companies who acquire those media companies. (laughs) It was a a lot of knowledge sharing in every direction for sure. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Very cyclical. I never thought about that. (laughs) What comes around goes around. Yeah. And so today you serve as the director of content for foundation and I'm sure we'll touch on parts of those experiences and what you do and sort of the knowledge and expertise that got you, got you that. But the main thing I want to talk about is the content fuel framework, your book on content marketing, creating stories, coming up with content ideas. The the first thing on my mind is just, you know, for pure curiosity's sake is where did the book come from? Like what was the inspiration for the book? Why did you write it? Yeah. So the, I mean, the inspiration is sort of twofold. Um, one thing is I found, so like I said, I, I was running Story Fuel, my, my consulting agency at the time. And uh, one of the things I, I kept hearing from, from clients and, and when I was doing trainings uh, is that people couldn't believe the, the speed with which I could come up with ideas. And what frustrated me as someone who was a consultant, as someone who was, you know, a, a trainer, I couldn't teach that to people because I didn't know where it was coming from, right? It, you know, people like, you just, you have a skill, like it was an instinct or I learned it in J school. Like I didn't really know. I just did it. And that drove me nuts because I wanted to be able to share that with others. So I did a lot of like self-searching and like giving myself like tests to try to see if I could decode, you know, what's the process in my head when I'm able to, you know, see a problem and come up with 10 different blog post ideas. And essentially what I discovered is that it's basically what you see in the content fuel framework, right? It's my brain would say, okay, well, what are the approaches we can take? What are the focus, potential focuses for the story? Is it history or people or data or opinion or something else? And then once I had that, I would say, okay, now what's the best way to bring that to life? Should we do it as a as a blog post, as a video, as, you know, an image gallery, as a map, a timeline, whatever else. So I realized that I was sort of answering those two questions. What's the focus of it and what's the format? And if you have sort of a ready list of those two things, you can combine any pairing uh, and come up with an idea Mm -hmm. fairly quickly. So 
that was sort of the the start of it. The the second layer is that for a while, what is now the content field framework was just like an exercise that we would do in a lot of my trainings. I was scheduled to speak at a conference in, in Berlin. And as I was on my way there, I was on the board of this particular organization. So I was scheduled to speak there. And they told me as I'm on the plane on my way there that their other speaker had had, had some sort of accident and wasn't going to be able to make it. So could I come up with a second presentation so that I could speak back to back on two different topics? And so in that moment where I had, you know, like 12 hours to create an entire second presentation on a related but totally different topic, I pulled that exercise out of, you know, the arsenal and was like, okay, I've got this. I do it in workshops, so let me try to just turn it into a a presentation. And um, much to my, I guess, joy, but at the time, disappointment, that particular one got a much better response, got better ratings. I had more (laughs) follow-up questions about it than the one I had, you know, rehearsed and prepared. And so that was the signal to me that was like, okay, this, there's something here that it it is resonating with people. It's, it's providing them value. You know, people were asking if, if I had a guide on how to do it, you know, could I give them instructions to do it with their team? So that was the real cue to me that was like, okay, I figured this out just for my own purposes to make my own consulting and, and workshops easier but I see that other people are finding this valuable. And so I felt like I needed to practice what I preached. I needed to listen to my audience and I needed to create a resource, you know, that would, that would give that to them in in the most accessible way possible. So, you know, long story, a little bit longer. It was, you know, frustration at not knowing how my brain works and then frustration at that accident becoming something that people loved more than what I did on purpose. Yeah, I love that. Well, I mean, the sort of the curse of the genius is a very real thing for anyone who garners some sort of experience and then turns that into some sort of expertise, right? That uh, you, you gather things over time, you learn things, you sort of start to piece things together in your head. And then more recently, I've been thinking, I, I forget who shared it, but there was this kind of spectrum. It was like unconscious incompetence. It's like you don't know mm-hmm. why you're bad at something. And then it's uh, conscious incompetence. So like, you know that you're bad at something. You're not really sure why. (laughs) And then there's conscious competence. So uh, you know sort of why you're good at something and you're sort of aware of something that's Mm -hmm. going on. And then there's unconscious competence. And I think what happens is that so many people that go through that spectrum and they get to that stage of unconscious competence where they can just do things like it's a talent, right? It's just like second nature. Like you see athletes, you know, hitting grand slams and, you know, dunking the basketball and all these crazy feats. And, but they couldn't tell you why they did because they can't go back to that kind of conscious competence stage. It takes a lot to really pull it out of yourself. Well, and the interesting thing is it takes a lot to put it to that point, right? Like the, the reason they're so good at those things is, is because they've been, you know, doing a hundred free throws a day for, you know, 15 years. Like that's, that's how you do it. You know, it's not like Mm -hmm. a a certain angle on your, on your pinky finger. Like it's, you know, it's, it's all of that contributes to it. And so I think, yeah, I think it was the same thing. Like this was a muscle that I had just used so often, especially in a journalism context. Like I always say, you never see a newspaper that says, sorry, we couldn't think of anything. Come back tomorrow. Like, you know, there's always (laughs) more stories. There's always another way to look at it. And so, 
I, I think I didn't think of content ideas as, as like a, a non-renewable resource. I didn't think they were scarce. That wasn't like the mindset that I had, that I had more the mindset of like, there's always more to talk about. There's always another approach. There's always deeper or a different angle you can take. And I took that for granted because that was, you know, that was the, what I studied. That was what I had experienced. And so it hadn't really occurred to me, yeah, that, that other people might find them to be something that's like a scarce, non-renewable resource and, yeah. and that I could, you know, I could hopefully provide some value by, by shifting that mindset with some tools. Yeah. Well, I think what's, what's really cool is that the framework, and we'll dig into some of the specifics here in a second, but the framework really helps geniuses, you know, on what do you call it? Reverse the curse, right? Where you can <laughs> actually help people extract some of the knowledge that they've acquired over time, teach things that they've learned, or they have, you know, kind of some sort of specialized knowledge on using the framework basically to kind of go through the list and really do your due diligence on what are all, all the ideas they have locked up in this brain of mine, you know, through the experiences I've had, through the expertise that I've gained. Yeah, I, I always liken it to, and it, I guess this is the, the unconscious uh, competence thing. I'll have, to, I'll have to dig into that a little bit more and see how I, can, how I can use something like that to explain it. But I always give the example of, you know, if you speak a language other than English and someone finds out, they're always like, oh, say something. Right. Or like if you're funny, they're like, oh, tell a joke. I heard you're funny. And it's like in that moment, you cannot come up with a single joke, a single word, because you have like the entire library of all eternity at your disposal. Right. Like any kind of joke, any word you can say in another language, you get paralyzed by possibility. And so what I find is that it's so much easier if we can give our brain some sort of prompt, some sort of starting point. So instead of tell me a joke, can you tell me a knock-knock joke? Like, oh, okay, I can, I can do that. That I've got an arsenal of, right? I've got tools in my toolbox there. Or, you know, can you, how would you greet someone in that language? Like that is easier because you've given me a category. And so that's really what I was trying to do with the, you know, with the, the focuses and the formats in the book is just say like, you know, instead of saying I need an idea or I need to come up with content, which is like such a gigantic, vague thing, like let's give ourselves specific prompts. What if it has to be about history and it has to be an infographic? Could you tell that story through the angle of history in an infographic? Maybe not, but at least you're thinking about something specific instead of like, you know, sort of free floating in space of all that is content. Yeah. Yeah. I think that I've read it maybe a, a handful of times and it's sort of like the prevailing advice for anyone getting started with content marketing and just creating content in general is you pull out a spreadsheet and you just start writing down any idea that pops into your head and all the things that you know you just sort of like do the brain dump but the problem is like you said that sometimes you can't even get things down on paper because it's hard to really think of something sort of so ambiguous so broad like just share anything yeah. write down anything so what do you take people through like what is the framework what are kind of the prompts and the way that you split up the ideation process yeah so the the two things that we want to focus on when we're doing a brainstorm the first one is what i call the focus that's sort of like your angle or your approach to the story so if we were to you know if we were trying to tell a story about a new business in town there's a new business in town and you know we're trying to the, you know, share about that, you know, we would go through this list of focuses, the, the angles, and the first one, for example, is people. And so we could say, oh, well, we could talk about the people who founded the business, right? That would be pretty interesting. Let's see, you know, what their deal is and why they started it and what they're interested in. We could talk about, you know, the, the fourth focus is history. So we could look back and say, okay, well, what were these people doing before? Or what was this, what was this storefront before this business was here? What could we do sort of looking at the past that is relevant to the story now? 
You could also do uh, focus seven is, is data. You could do a fully data focused approach. How many bricks did they use to build the new storefront? And you know, how many people can they seat in the seating area? And you know, how long is it, did it take them to, to build all of this? You know, just sort of running through all the various numbers associated with it. You know, there's, there's so many ways to, to tell it. So the idea is I, I'm giving you 10, here's 10 potential angles you could take. And they're the 10 that are, are most common. Most of the content that, that we consume falls into these categories. You can sort of use them like a checklist to ask yourself, could I tell the story this way, this way, this way, and first decide on what's that focus that's going to make the most sense in this particular instance. Hmm. For, for those 10, so I'll just read through them really quickly. The first one is people and then basics, details, history, process, curation, data, product, example, and opinion. Do you see it more as like a kind of like mix and mash? You can, you know, take even like a couple of these focuses and bring them together, or are they more to be sort of like, you know, th this is a, a people oriented piece of content or, or focus where it's really like there's a specific format for each one of these and they sort of stand and live alone. No, they abs absolutely kind of mesh together. So even that example just there where I said, you know, the people of this business, if we talk about what the people were doing before they started this business, well, now it's people and history, right? Uh, mm -hmm. And if we talk about how they went about building their business, how long has this been in the works? Well, now we're talking about a process. So the idea is not necessarily that you need to pick one exclusively. The idea is that by considering each of these options, you're going to help yourself come upon ideas a little bit more easily. And those ideas will probably spark new ideas. You'll probably build on them. You'll combine them. Uh, you know, you'll find something that you can use for later and something from the past that you can bring up and use this time. So it's just to give yourself prompts, you know, and sometimes the answer is no. And sometimes the answer answer is yes and sometimes it's yes both you know so it's yeah. just just a, an idea that you know think through some of these options and you may come up with approaches and perspectives you hadn't considered before hmm. so one of the things I'm, I'm thinking through just kind of going through the process and, and looking through each of these 10 is that pretty quickly if you start to mix and match even before you get to the next step of the process which is the formats is you can generate a whole bunch of ideas just right off the bat, right? Just even taking, yep. you know, one of each of these, we have 10. Now you take kind of two combinations. I think now we kind of do like an exponential, right? So then I have like hundreds of ideas, right? And put it, <laughs> we yeah. can quite literally generate thousands of ideas just based off of mixing and matching three or four of these different uh, types of content. Yeah, and exactly. maybe even generating too many ideas. <laughs> is, there a, is there a process or way you think through sort of trying to find the, the cream of the crop, the top of the list, like the best ideas based on someone's industry knowledge, what they're trying sure. to share. Yeah, I mean, so this particular uh, framework is, is used for solving the opposite problem, right? The, the not enough yeah. ideas problem. But yeah, if you if you are in the wonderful position of having too many ideas and you don't know where to start, it always comes back to your business goals for me. So, or your personal goals, if this is personal, you know, personal brand content and trying to figure out which of these pieces of content, which of these ideas is closest to that goal, you know, best aligns with that goal. Because if your goal is to convert, you know, you need to sell more product, then my guess is some of those some of those ideas are probably, you know, more top of funnel ideas. They're not gonna be a good fit if you're trying to measure specifically conversions. You know, some of them may not be branded enough, like you may not even get an opportunity to mention your product in some of these things. So, you know, knowing that conversion is your goal and maybe knowing that you have very little budget and very little time, well we're probably not gonna go with a you know, a video series if we're we're low on budget and time. We're probably gonna do something that's a little more scalable for us. Um, 
you know, it allows you to narrow it down a little bit. But yeah, generally what I find is if you go into using these, these, the content field framework as a checklist um, for a specific need, uh, you generally find the idea that you know, like, I can't really describe it, but people generally are like, oh, that's the one. Like, that's what I was waiting for. Mm -hmm. It just, something clicks and it just feels right. But yeah, if you are using it as an exercise to just try to come up with as many as possible, I mean, the, that's why the promise was unlimited, right? That's that's the uh, that's the, sub, the subtitle yeah. there. So that's the hope is that you can, you know, you can keep using it and keep coming up with things. But yeah, as long as you're cataloging them somewhere, keep track of them, whether it's a spreadsheet or a notebook or a Google Doc, I prefer digital so you can search that way, you know, you can kind of go back into your into your archives later on that then, you know, there's a good chance you'll find a home for some of those ideas in the future. Are there any that stand out to you as underutilized or there aren't, you know, enough of or maybe even overlooked as people always go for X, Y, and Z, but really they should be looking and, you know, investing more in ABC because no one else is doing it and there's this big gap in, in content. Yeah. Well, I mean, from a marketing perspective, I think we all go straight to product uh, as like we have to talk about the product and, and just the product yeah. and that's the only way. The thing that I think is really important to remember is that a lot of this, these other focuses are still about the product. They're just not only about the product, right? So if I'm talking about the founders of the business or the designer who invented the product, that's still about the product. It's still, it's still, you know, serving your brand goals. It's just also delivering some other kind of value to your audience. So, you know, product I think is the the go-to and everyone just kind of creates very product focused, very branded content. Um, but I do think that, I think that history is kind of underutilized. I think we think that history kind of, if we do any sort of history focused content, it's like our company history or company about page. And that's pretty much it. But there are so many instances where you could sort of look back and say, well, what are the trends that brought us to here? What are the, the technological innovations that had to, had to be invented to get us to this point? Who are the people who contributed to this movement that got us to where we are now? You know, again, like the, the new business in town, well, what, ha what has been in this storefront before? How cool would it be to show what those different businesses looked like on their opening days with archival photos. I think it's just uh, we're so focused on the now and the future that sometimes that conscious reminder to say, well, what's the history angle here can sometimes surface some really cool stuff. Yeah, the history is awesome. Uh, I think there's been a few uh, like product hunt kind of micro sites that have been launched around you know, here's what like Airbnb's pitch deck looked like, or like, here's what Airbnb's first, you know, landing page yeah. looked like, or you start looking at sort of the evolution of startups or websites or kind of, you know, take anything, right. It could even yeah. be a storefront, uh, a city, right. There's lots of different yeah. ways of that. So what's the next set of the process? It's format. So now you have a, a focus, you have an approach to a piece of content. Yep. Now it's more about the, the format. Can you walk me through what the formats are and how they play into the focus? Yeah, for sure. So once, you, once you've gone through the list of focuses and you have you know, an approach or a couple that you're considering, the next thing you want to ask is, how am I going to bring this to life? And I think this is often where we tend to start because it's more tangible. You know, when I talk about content formats, it's things like live video, video, infographics, writing, images. Like we have a language for that already. We already know what to call that. We consume them all the time. And so because it's more familiar, we tend to start there. But it's really much better to choose the format once you know what you're going to say, then decide how to say it. Because otherwise it can really be a mismatch. It's sort of like when you get a package in the mail from Amazon and it's like a very tiny object and a very gigantic box and you're like they picked 
the box before they picked the thing they were sending in the box. Like you can just tell it's not a fit. Um, we don't want to do the same thing with our content. So yeah, once you have the focus, the, the question that I like to ask is, you know, what's the best way to bring this to life? And then again, you can use the list of formats that are, are in the book as, as options to say, could I, could I tell this uh, history focused story? You know, could I tell it through writing? Yeah, for sure. We could definitely write a piece about it. What about an infographic? Yeah, we could probably look back and say, you know, some total over time, what are the totals of these various numbers? Could we do it through audio? Yeah, maybe we can unearth like the original radio commercial from, you know, I don't know, 100 years ago or something. So like you can just kind of go through the checklist of different formats and see, is it possible to tell the story in this way? They won't all be winners, right? They're not, you're not, your goal is not to actually create 100 pieces for a single purpose. It's just to really have more options to, to select from uh, and hopefully to encourage you to potentially use formats that you may not consider otherwise. Like I know for me, I'm a writer at, at heart and so my first choice will almost always be writing because I can see how I can tell the story in that way and I'm confident that I can do it in the time that we have, right? Like that's that's my sweet spot. So it's nice for me sometimes to force myself to think out of the box a little bit and say, okay, I know I can tell the story through writing, but would it be better as a quiz? Maybe. Like, would this be better as a live video? Yes, I should probably do a live instead of just sitting alone and, and writing it instead, you know? So I find it a really helpful way to to break out of your, your comfort zone when that comfort zone is not serving you. Yeah, I think the format discussion is really interesting because one, I think uh, there's kind of been this thought swirling around the back of my head for a yeah. while, which is something to the effect of like content medium fit where it's, it's exactly what you said of, okay, for this thing that I want to say, what's the best way for me to deliver that and for it to, you know, live on the internet somewhere. Yeah. And sometimes it's not your, your, your first idea or your first choice. It's, yeah. Hey, maybe this like story is better fit for, you know, audio on a podcast or maybe this like how to, is better fit for like something written or even like you and know a, a live video gallery. right where you have yeah. q a yeah exactly or maybe this like piece of data is better fit on an infographic instead of just like a, a list of you know text on, yeah. a, on a screen we can bring some life to it uh and i think there's something really really powerful there where you know now we could probably instead of content medium fit which is a little bit clunky maybe it's more focused format fit which has a, a little bit of a, a better ring to it yeah. but how do you think through sort of matching the focus to the format and making sure that what you're saying is delivered in the right place in the right way. Yeah. So, I mean, the, the first thing to think about is, is honestly, as you're running through the checklist, try to picture it. And I know that sounds like really vague, but if you can't picture it, even with some like additional thought, then it may not be the right fit. That's just the gut thing that you kind of have to trust sometimes. But there's, there's some other obvious ones too. I mean, when you're thinking about live video as a possibility, you want to ask whether being live is actually in service of it, or would it be better if we could polish this more and do it as a static video and vice versa. So that's always a consideration. Would this actually benefit from being live? Like what's going to be different and why should it be live? If you can't answer that question, it should probably be a, a you know a static video if you know maybe if you're considering whether to whether to use some of the more visual formats like an infographic a video image gallery or live video you know it's important to know is there anything to visualize here like I think you know I, I work with many uh, 
you know, tech focused clients. And sometimes it's a struggle to come up with like yet another image to represent cloud computing or, you know, like the deep web or, you know, cryptocurrency, like without getting into crappy stock photos, right? So if that's what you're going to be left with, like maybe we don't try to force visuals on this one because the visuals aren't adding anything if we're having to search really hard to find something that we don't even love. So, you know, then going, going a different route is probably easier. You know, if you're thinking about audio or video or live video, is there going to be something to hear that's worth hearing? You know, is it is it actually worth, is it benefiting the audience to hear this in its natural form? You know, some stories, it's like, you know, I could have just read that. You know, actually, it would have been better if you summarized the key points than making me listen to the whole thing, you know? So... It's, I think it's just kind of a question of, again, maybe this is just uh, too much instinct from, from having done this, but I think as you, as you try to picture it, that's where that, those elements come in. When you try to picture your story as an infographic and you're like, oh wait, there's really nothing for me to illustrate, so that probably doesn't work. Or you try to do it as a live video and you realize, oh yeah, actually, I can't imagine how that, you know, we probably need more planning than that, so we won't do it live. That, that visualization process of trying to take that, that focus and fit it into that format, just that process of trying to picture it, I find, is, is so helpful in so many cases for figuring out if that's a good fit. Yeah, yeah. Uh, one of the things to, to play a little bit of a devil's advocate <laughs> is how do you balance creating content native to a specific format, like writing, or you just go down through the list, so writing, infographic, audio, video, live video, image gallery, timeline, quiz, tool, or map. So how do you balance creating content specifically for one of those formats mm-hmm. versus like repurposing a piece of content to another one of those formats are those kind of like opposing ideas or are they kind of symbiotic you know complementary in some way yeah you can't you can't hear me shaking my head but I'm shaking my head vigorously it's uh, you can absolutely just like we talked about how the focuses kind of can bleed into one another and you can have a story that focuses on people and history and data for example you can just as easily have a written piece that has a complementary video that also has an infographic that also has a map at the bottom to see where all the locations are in fact you know most of our our algorithmic overlords actually tend to to prefer when you have multiple forms of media in your posts, right? They like when there's options there, different types of, of media. So it definitely, it's not a, it's not a uh, one or nothing, you know, an all or nothing situation. You most certainly can, can choose multiple to tell a single story. You can combine them together. You can use one and then later on repurpose it into another. You know, repurposing is something I could, I could talk about for forever too. I love content repurposing. I think it's it's such a smart thing to do, particularly if you don't have a ton of resources, right? Make more with what you have. It's like leftovers after Thanksgiving. Uh, you know, you don't just put the turkey in the fridge and never touch it. Like you make sandwiches, you make soup, like you you keep finding ways to make use of what's left. So that would that I don't think they're opposing at all. I think if anything, when you go to repurpose, you can revisit these checklists to see, okay, I told this story through video, but would it work as audio only? Could I extract the audio and, and use that for something? Or could I take stills from the video and use the, the photos to, to do something else? You know, could I create a quiz to test people's knowledge and see how much they learned from this piece of content? There, there are just so many ways, you know, to, to revisit that list and see, you know, given that list of formats, is there is there some other way I could try to bring this story to life again? Yeah. So similar question to, to before on the focuses, for the formats, are there any 
one, two, or three that you feel like are underutilized, overlooked, there aren't enough of, or people are, are scared of possibly? Yeah, I mean, I think uh, sort of I did them almost in order of what I think is probably familiar and comfortable for people. So the stuff at the top, the writing, infographic, audio and video, I feel like those are those are kind of table stakes at this point. Most folks are comfortable, at least on some level, with those kinds of things. But the ones closer to the bottom, you know, a timeline, a quiz, a tool and a map, I think those are probably really underutilized more than any others. Map, for example, I mean, we see maps and timelines in particular all the time if you watch anything in the crime genre, right? If you watch like a docu-series or a documentary or a show uh, about a crime, there's always a map because you got to know where everybody lived and where all the evidence was found and the routes they traveled, right? And there's always a timeline because the time is relevant to that particular story. And absent those two things, it would be difficult for us as outsiders to understand and to follow along and to, and to really comprehend the story. And Oftentimes, I see content where I think, man, I'm having trouble. I, I just met all these people. I can't keep all of the dates straight. Like, I wish I had some sort of uh, timeline to show who joined when, or I wish I had a map to see how close all these different locations are and whether one's close to me, uh, you know, because I don't want to look up the addresses individually and then try to figure out which one is closest, you know. So there's a lot of instances where I think we can add value by, by using some of those atypical formats. And I also think, I think quizzes got kind of a bad rap. I think that the quizzes have always been a really great way to test your audience's knowledge or, or put people into categories. And I think for a lot of businesses, particularly like B2B or heavily regulated industries or, you know, people who take themselves very seriously, as many of us do, um, I think they think of quizzes as like something that's juvenile, that it's like the only kind of quiz is the BuzzFeed style of quiz, where it's like, if if you tell me your favorite friend's character, I'll tell you which router you should use. Like, you don't have to do that. Uh, you know, there's ways to do this in a more elevated fashion, uh, you know, by, for example, testing people's knowledge to figure out, do they understand how routers work? And if not, why don't you serve up content that helps them better understand that? Or, you know, a tool, for example, for that would be to enter some information about the square footage of your home and how many people and how many devices. And then the tool will tell you, here's the type of router or modem or how many extenders you need to cover that amount of space. So I, I just think that people kind of think tools and quizzes are like this either really complicated technologically, you know, option, or they're just like, this is not for us because we're, we're a big serious business and quizzes are, are not. But there, I think it's such a good opportunity, especially for helping people decide which pricing tier is right for them, decide which product is right for them, decide whether they're even ready to make a purchase, right? You can use it to qualify leads. I, I just think that, that quizzes are probably one of the most underutilized and also the most engaging. I agree personally. I mean, quizzes are actually the reason that I first joined Facebook, <laughs> you know, when I was a kid, essentially. Yeah. Facebook was really early, but I was like, you know, this whole social network thing, like, I don't really care about. It. I just want to know, like, you know, which Marvel character I am or which Harry Potter character I am. I forget, like, all the quizzes that I did, but there was a million, you know, and they can, like, build up this this big profile. But also, like you said, I mean, that, that was actually a very juvenile uh, example, <laughs> but I listened to the, the My First Million podcast with Sam Parr and Sean Puri. And Sean was literally, I think, I forget what the idea was exactly, but it was in like the health and fitness space. And he was like, I know how to go this business. I would just, I would create a quiz that would basically tell you, you know, like what you should be. It was like something around like vitamins, supplements, mm -hmm. something like that. What you should be taking. And I'll just run Facebook ads to that thing all day long and I'll optimize the quiz. And like, that would be the whole like lead funnel essentially. Yeah. And uh, so you can't, you can't underestimate them. Even the map, I, one of my favorite features in my 
podcast analytics tool actually um, actually it's my host also it's transistor is just seeing like what are all the states and countries that people listen to my podcast on like this is a way it's it's way more fun to see it on a map than it is just, like i said just a bullet point yeah or you know ordered list of of all the same data and think about it like imagine if in the dashboard instead of a map that has either like color density or like the size is highlighted or the darkness of the color indicates the the, the density like imagine if it was just a list of every city where someone listened to our podcast like how could you possibly make use of that data you just ignore it and i think we don't realize that because we have insight into the things we create content about, we are sometimes doing that to our audience by not providing a graphic that shows how items connect to one another, by not providing a timeline that shows the order of operations, by not providing a map that shows, you know, distances between things or how different locations are connected. I think, you know, we're, we're doing our audience a disservice when we don't take that, that beginner's, you know, approach and say, okay, well, what do I, what, what am I unconsciously, you know, competent in here that a, a different type of audience might, might need more context for? Hmm. Yeah, it makes me think of my friend, Matt Giovanisi as well. He has this kind of like brand website called Money Lab. And his about page is literally like this custom built scrollable timeline of like his whole history. That's so like, cool. This is, I mean, one, it's amazing because it like stands out, you know, it's like the coolest about page ever. And I hopefully will be able to replicate it someday. I have to figure out how to do it in Webflow. <laughs> but, you know, so much better than just like reading someone's bio. Like it really makes it an interactive experience. Yeah. And especially when th there's more and more content than ever before. And when, like you said, there's a lot of content formats being heavily favored, like, you know, written infographics, audio, video, when you can do things that are just like a little bit different, a little bit more creative, they yeah. just stand out. It makes, it elevates the focus. It elevates the content itself and brings more life into it because of its, you know, because it's different, because it's in a different format. Yeah. Well, and the other thing that's interesting is you don't even have to pick like a, a crazy off the wall format is sometimes it's just the unexpected one. You know, sometimes mm -hmm. like you said, like that's not crazy to have a timeline, but it's people don't generally do it on the about page. So it lets you stand out, you know? Yeah. Yeah. hundred percent. So there's sort of like this third component here, which is the multiplier. What is the multiplier and how does that fit in with the focus and the format to, you know, for this whole kind of, you know, content fuel framework? <laughs> so yeah, the, the multipliers are sort of like the, the supercharge, uh, the NOS button at the end, right? Like that's where, you know, it gets, it gets serious. So if you've already gone through your focuses and formats, and like you said, you know, you have this sort of exponential power of, of combining all of these different things, the multipliers allow you to take any one of those ideas and turn it into many different ideas that are based off of a similar thing. Um, so I share four different in the book. I'll do location just as an example for us here. So, you know, we were talking about different, you know, new store locations in town. Let's say our new business was a coffee shop and it just opened here in my hometown of Raleigh. I could do a roundup that is, you know, the best coffee shops in Northwest Raleigh, the best coffee shops in East Raleigh, you know, the best coffee shops downtown within walking distance of such and such campus. Do it again for a different university's campus. Uh, then we do all the ones in this part of the state, in our county. We do all the ones in North Carolina. We do all the ones in the Carolinas. We do the best coffees on the East Coast, so you could take a road trip. Uh, the best in America, right? The best coffee places in the world. It can, you know, that may be a little extreme unless we're like really into coffee and we have a lot of coffee lovers. But um, when you take one of those multipliers, you have this single like best coffee shops in town and it can become, 
you know, 10, 20, 50, 100 different pieces of content. Again, not always going to be relevant. Sometimes we have a narrower audience than that, but it's easy to imagine if you are a tourism board, for example, you work in tourism or you work in, in travel and hospitality, any idea you do could be multiplied by 50. Just make one for each state. And it's going to appeal to different people. It's going to it's going to be different content, right? It's not like you're just copy pasting. It's saying that well, if we're going to do a roundup of the best botanical gardens, like let's just do one for each state because we serve all those states, right? It just it's really easy to take one idea and make you know countless countless more out of the same concept. So you're getting as much mileage as possible out of it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So the the other three are time, demographic. So there's location, and then the fourth one is resources. Mm -hmm. Could you give a few examples of some of the other ones as well, just so we can visualize what the multipliers look like? Yeah, so time uh, means that you're, you're changing it based on some sort of time period. So uh, this might be, you know, we're talking about fall fashion, winter fashion, summer fashion, back to school fashion, spring fashion, fashion for your Thanksgiving day party, I don't know, uh, Super Bowl fashion, like you're just sort of changing the time period in which that content applies. You could also use time as a resource. So when we talk about resources, we're talking about what's necessary for that content. This tends to work really well with like how to or instructional content. My favorite ex easy example of this is like a recipe. All right, so we're going to make bean chili. We're going to make chili, okay? But we're going to do chili without meat. And then we're going to do chili without dairy. And then we're going to do chili without any peppers in case you're allergic. Then we're going to do, uh, you know, chili without, without a, if you don't have a crock pot or you don't have a pot, right? Chili in the air fryer. I don't know, that sounds horrible. But, you know, you just kind of run through, like, depending on which resources are available, which could be ingredients or tools, you know, you adapt it. Same thing if the resources are non-ingredients. So, if you're a chiropractor and you're doing the stre best stretches for lower back pain, well, what are the best stretches you can do on a yoga mat or with a chair or if you have a partner or mm. in a doorway or with a resistance band? I'm just listing, I don't even know, yoga blocks. I don't know what other tools you might have at your disposal. But, you mm. know, the, those are all different resources that you may or may not have. And then demographic is just changing it based on people. So... Um, thinking we did our, our example before of those best coffee shops. Well, we probably want to mix it up. What are the best coffee shops for students? Because those are probably louder, maybe don't have as much seating. What are the best coffee shops that are stroller accessible so that moms can take their kids there? What are the best coffee shops for for dates, right? Because that's going to be a different vibe. It's for, for couples. Best coffee shops for... I don't know. We could talk about which ones are, are most accessible for people who may be in a wheelchair. You know, there's there's a a lot of different ways we could kind of go about it just by switching up who exactly is this for if we adapt the audience slightly or break it into smaller bits you know it could could result in different content the important thing with the multipliers though is that like our goal here is not purely volume we're not just trying to like copy paste as many times as possible again you only want to create those that are going to be relevant to your audience and only when changing these multipliers actually changes the content. We're not just trying to like mm -hmm. pander to people by pasting the same thing with different headlines. Yeah. Like that's that's not what we're going for. But if the best coffee shops truly are different, depending on whether you're going somewhere to study or to work or to go on a date or kid friendly, like that, then you should make those different lists if that's going to help you, you know? And again, coffee shop rankings may not be what works for your business, but, you know, my guess is by applying at least one of the multipliers, you can probably find a way to break your content down into smaller parts that's going to be even more valuable for your audience. 
Love that. That's amazing. What about some unconventional or maybe like creative ways to repurpose content that you've already created? Maybe it's sort of like that, you know, creative genius problem where, or the, the genius curse problem where you've already done a whole bunch, but you're just trying to figure out ways to, you know, get more mileage out of what you've already done and you don't want to reinvent the wheel. You know, it's, it's stuff you've already done. Are there any things that come to mind where, you know, it's in, in, not repurposing in the sense of how do I make this blog post into a video or vice versa, but how do I take something that I've already done and turn it into one of these formats? Yeah, there's so many different ways to repurpose our content. And I think, unfortunately, I think what happens is we we think repurposing is only like copy pasting when mm. really there are so many different ways you could repurpose. So one of them that, you know, I think is pretty obvious is like excerpting. So copying smaller pieces out of it and using those. So I imagine, for example, that when you are trying to repurpose this interview, you will probably take specific quotes or specific clips, small bits of it, and make those their own piece of content for sharing on social media or for for teasing it in an email, for example. Um, but you could also reformat the content, which we talked about before. So, uh, you know, we are here, you and I are having a live video interview right now that is going to become a video that people can rewatch later. So now it's just a regular video. It may also become straight audio. People can just listen to the audio only by, by uh, reformatting it into some of these other formats. You can kind of find a way to give it new life. The multiplying, obviously I think multiplying is a great way to repurpose your content. If you've got one that's working really well, like capitalize on that. The example I like to, to give about this, and it's so uh, silly in retrospect, but this is what it is. When I was working at Time Inc., we had a number of publications that were food focused, like recipe type type environments. I don't remember which one, but one of the Kardashians said something flattering about red velvet as a flavor, that red velvet was their favorite flavor. And when I tell you that all of our red velvet recipes started spiking, you can bet that we went through and made red velvet anything that could be red velvet, right? Like cupcakes, cookies, frosting, smoothies. Like, you know, we knew red velvet was working, so we're going to multiply yeah. times like whatever we have to make sure that we're capitalizing mm. on that red velvet trend. Um, it's like multiplying can definitely be a way to repurpose that one original recipe that's doing well. Now we've got 15 recipes and we can capture different traffic for that. That's amazing. Yeah. One of the ones that also stuck out to me, I think you mentioned it on Twitter possibly was looking through your, your sent inbox yeah. in your email and just, you know, people ask you questions or if you give unsolicited advice or if you're just like responding to people who, you know, come through, respond to your newsletter, for example, yeah. you know, there's this whole like gold mine kind of treasure trove of just things you've already told people or interesting examples, anecdotes, yeah. case studies even to be made just off of your sent email inbox, like this untapped resource, which I thought was fantastic. Well, like just as an example, you just asked me that question about the different ways to repurpose and my brain literally said, make a note for later. That would be a good Twitter thread. Like, like I'm gonna repurpose that answer <laughs> yeah. into a Twitter thread yeah. probably. Mm -hmm. Oh, I love it, that's awesome. But what about, so this is probably a little bit more of a, well, no, it, it could be B2B or B2C. But obviously there's, there's usually a commercial aspect to a lot of content that's being created, yeah. whether it's a product or a service, whether it's B2B, B2C, software, or you know consumer product. How do you mention your product or service, whatever you're trying to sell in the content without scaring off or turning off the audience without coming off as salesy or, or spammy? Yeah, well there's, I mean, luckily there's actually some data that we can look at that 
you know, tell, gives us some clues for this. So the data was uh, created by Press Board, and they did a study of a bunch of articles and, and basically came up with a couple best practices. Uh, so one of them would be, you generally don't want to mention the brand within the first 100 words. And the reasoning there being that people see that if you open it and the first sentence is already dropping product mentions, you're like, all right, I know what I'm in for here. I'm out of here. Like, this, this is not going to be valuable for me. This is for them, you know? So not in the first 100 words is, is a good rule of thumb. You also don't want to wait till the very end, though, because it's sort of like at that point, it's almost like trickery, like, haha, we got you. You read all the way to the end and it was branded. Surprise. So the the sweet spot is in the like 300 to 500 word range. Somewhere around there is, is generally a good place, you know, assuming it's written. If not, you know, apply the percentages to your content of choice. The idea just being that we don't want it at the very beginning and we don't want it at the very end. Somewhere in the early to meaty middle is probably where we want to be. Just so that at that point, you've already given enough value that you've earned the right for someone to probably want to keep keep consuming it, but you also haven't waited so long that they feel like you've deceived them. So that's those are some of our best practices that we you know try to try to stick to when we can. Yeah, yeah, that's great. I'm switching gears a little bit and to get a little bit meta as well. I'd love to hear about your marketing strategy for the book, and even as as I know, or maybe as I could be wrong, but. The book launched right around when the pandemic happened, yeah. right around COVID, and you had to sort of like adjust the book strategy, you know, book yeah. launch a little bit and strategy. So like, just, you know, how's it going? What, what have you tried? What was the thought going into it? How has it changed? Give me all the things. Yeah. So my, my book dropped on February 24th. And as you all may remember, it was the first week of March, which is, you know, mere days later that we all went into lockdown. So yeah, it was a, it was a big unexpected change. So I had about 40 something conferences that I was supposed to be speaking at in, in 2020. And many of those had said, you know, well, we're going to buy however many books when you come. All of those mm-hmm. conferences were, were canceled. All of those book orders were canceled. I also had a five city book tour that was planned with a sponsor. And that was, they pulled out of that obviously for safety reasons. So yeah, pretty much like my whole book launch plan was just like, out the window pretty much wow. <laughs> like that. So yeah, I mean, I was like, okay, well, obviously we need to pivot. The first thing I, I tried to do is remanage my own expectations, just to be totally frank, because I think this is true of anything in life. You you build it up for so long in your head. I mean, I had been working on that book, you know, for so long, planning the marketing for eight months. Like I had plans, I had expectations and those were no longer serving me. Like those expectations and plans were built in a different environment, a different reality. And so had I held on to that, I would have just been disappointed, right? So the first part was admittedly like a grieving process of just being like, okay, all, none of that is going to happen. Like all those plans, I just have to forget about them because it's not helpful. Um, And then I just tried to think, well, what can I do? Like, what can I do in this new the the new normal god i hate that phrase so much (laughs) but you know like what are my options now and so the first thing i did was i tried to pivot instead of having an in-person book tour i tried to see how can i do this digitally so i mean i booked myself as best i could on as many podcasts facebook live shows youtube live shows joining someone as a guest on instagram live you know clubhouse when that came around like i was just trying to get myself out there digitally in the way that i would have done in person it's often really hard to tie sales to that directly other than to like look at timing and try to extrapolate based on what else you're doing but you know it it definitely was a lot of awareness and I certainly heard people saying yeah I heard you on such and such show and that's why I got the book um but the other thing I did is I just like I started doing weird experiments because honestly I figured like 
my whole plan was out the window. So, you know, what do I have to lose? Like I, I can only gain at this point, right? <laughs> so one of yeah. the things I did that was a lot of fun is I had actually, before all of this went down, I had had a photographer, a friend of mine, take a bunch of lifestyle photos in my book. And I had intended for those to be used, you know, in ads or, you know, landing pages, things like that. You know, someone like opening the book and, and a notebook next to it or like, you know, drinking coffee and the books in the background or whatever. Just some like gentle branding, I would say, in, in the photos to use as as content filler. And I realized, I was like, well, some of these kind of look like stock photos. I, I, I wonder if, if people would use them for anything, you know, since I can't use them for what I was going to use them for. So I uploaded 10 of them to Unsplash, which is like a, a free stock photo website. And I tagged them with the kind of tags that I thought my audience would be looking for. So things like marketing, creator, writer, podcaster, solopreneur, creative, brainstorm, you know, the kind of words that I thought if they're writing an article about anything related to this, these are the words they might use to try to find a relevant image for it. And to date, those photos, and I've uploaded a few more since, have gotten more than a million impressions. Totally for free. I mean, other th- I already had the photos, but even if we factor in the entire cost of the photo shoot, I mean, a million impressions, it's you can't get a CPM like that. It was, you know, it was very cheap. Yeah. And, you know, sometimes people say like, okay, well, how many sales can you attribute to it? Like, I don't know. But would I still take a million free impressions on my book? Absolutely. You know, I can't say for sure that someone is going to read an article on Medium, see my my book in the blurry background and go buy it. Probably not. But maybe when they see it on the bookshelf, it's going to seem familiar for some reason when they see it the next time. You know, mm-hmm. I, who knows? But yeah, that was, a, that was sort of a fun... A fun little guerrilla marketing experiment. <laughs> oh yeah, I mean, kudos to you for for even trying and thinking of it. And you know, even if you if you look at something that you have, you know, it's hard to really, especially if you're kind of grieving or going through like, oh, all my plans are out the window. Now you have to f- yeah. figure all these new things. And you know, you're like, okay, well, I guess I'll go do that thing and see what happens. But a million free impressions. So have you uploaded more photos since then, or? Yeah kind of what how's that evolved yeah you know I I have definitely uploaded a few more I think when I first put the 10 it was like I think I forget exactly what happened but I think since I was a new account it was like upload 10 photos and that was like what I could do in one batch so Mm. that's what I did and then I sort of set it and forget it until all the email notifications started rolling in um yeah I mean that that was honestly set it and forget it kind of thing at first but as I got those emails that kept like you know, nudging me to, to do a little bit more, I, I uploaded some more from the same same shoot. I mostly looked at which are the ones that are doing best because there were certainly outliers in terms of, you know, the ones people were using more often and downloading more often. So I tried to upload more like that. And then I had I had some others that were not even the book. Like I, you know, I had photos that were, you know, of me doing a workshop, but like my back is turned and it's just me writing on a whiteboard, relevant terms, right? So mm. branded, is my book in it? No, but it like, it fits the same category. And the other thing that I found is when people share that content, sometimes I get tagged as, as the, you know, giving credit, which, you know, Unsplash really encourages. And so I'm connecting with new people and new people are connecting with me seeing that. So yeah, I mean, I, I couldn't tell you what the ROI is on it, to be honest. It's just a, a lot of impressions, but I've enjoyed it. It's It's been a fun experiment, and I'm always down to down to try things like that. Yeah, well, I mean, talk about repurposing. There's a great, <laughs> another great yeah. uh, example for your thread in the future. And for, and uh, hopefully, you know, you can give a little shout out to, to the podcast for inspiring. Yeah. But uh, beginning to wrap up here, 
I'd love to take a peek at your sort of swipe file as it were into some content examples, marketing examples. It could be ads, landing pages, commercials, you yeah. name it, that you think are you know exceptional or worth saving. Are there any that come top of mind of like, man, this is just amazing. I just love it. Caught my attention or just that you've had saved for a long time. You know, there's, I mean, there's a couple that I, that I have shared many times that are my favorites, but trying to, trying to bring up something I haven't talked about a ton. There's a, I believe it was Marketo who did this, but there was one of our, one of our marketing, marketing brand colleagues put out a coloring book for marketers, sort of like one of those adult meditation coloring books. And it, it was, it was it, you remember that? It was, I mean, it went gangbusters. It was like, people love this thing. I mean, I, I wouldn't have thought a coloring book as, as content, as a lead magnet, as, you know, a tool for attracting your audience, but it definitely, it definitely did the trick for them. I know that they've sent it back for reprints many, many times since. I think most of my favorite examples so are of people doing something outside the box, like of, of using a format that's unexpected or it doesn't even have to work particularly well. It's like, kind of like that experiment I did with the photos. I love when somebody connects the dots between two things that haven't been connected, at least, or I haven't seen it be connected before. That is always cool. I know I've seen um, one that sticks out in my memory is, you know, there was a I believe it was Whiteout. It may have been, you know, a competitor of Whiteout, but you know, conceptually, the the little tube of right. you know of white stuff that you would put on to like black out information or whiteout information on a on a page, right? Like censor or, or retype it. Mm-hmm. They had done sort of a, an out of home experience, I suppose, where they took some famous crosswalks and they had put like added the painting of like their tool at the end of the white stripes that are the crosswalk, which is just like super memorable obviously they didn't use whiteout or whatever to make the crosswalk but it just it was kind of like acknowledging the context and and doing something really different like additional street art that was making a a real life place a a, you know a normal installation and urban experience like part of their brand which is a a really cool concept Hmm. i love it well final question for you when i say everything is marketing what comes to mind what does that mean to you you know I don't know if it's good, a good or a bad thing, but my husband and I both work in, in the business and, you know, in, in marketing space. And one of the things that we'll joke about is occasionally one or the other of us, when we're consuming some sort of media, we'll go, oh, strategy is showing because you can like see the marketing, like you could see the effort, <laughs> the attempt, you know, and for us, yeah. it's funny, you know, because there's, you know, that's bound to happen at some point. It's a little bit like I imagine filmmakers have a hard time watching movies without analyzing, you know, the cuts and the and all of that. So for us, it's the same way uh, and being like, oh, strategy showing, like, look at them trying to reach millennial parents or, you know, whatever it is. That's for me, everything is marketing. Like I see it everywhere. <laughs> yep. It's everywhere. That's awesome. Well, Melanie, it's been a wealth of knowledge. Appreciate you sharing everything today on content. Truly it can generate unlimited ideas from the framework. And so we're going to link in the show notes to you, the book, to all the resources. And just wanted to say, appreciate you coming on and sharing. Yeah, thanks for letting me share my story. Thanks again to Melanie for coming on the show and make sure to check out the Content Fuel Framework and pick up a copy for yourself. I've gone ahead and done the hard, hard work for you of preparing a tweet to thank Melanie for coming on the show. All you have to do is click on the link in the show notes and fill in her name. To wrap up, here are a few of my takeaways and I'll actually mirror the format of the book as well. So first we have focuses. People, history, and data are some of my favorite focuses for content that are applicable across so many industries and are really just uh, you know, tried and true, proven focuses. Second, we have formats, 
The timeline, quiz, and map are super underrated formats for content. Most content is in writing, obviously. More recently, audio and video have been in vogue, but don't forget about all the other great formats. And third, we have multipliers. The multipliers are really where you can reach scale and get templated, templated or even programmatic to generate huge amounts of content. If you've got a question or a takeaway you want to share from this episode, you can actually do so in the Swipe Files community. You can chat with guests of the podcast as well as a bunch of other top-notch marketers. Join a community that will help you do your best work and be prolific. Check it out at swifiles.com membership. You can also get my free newsletter, Marketing Weekly. It's a curated digest of the best marketing content in your inbox every Sunday. And finally, check the show notes for all the important links. And if you could do me a quick favor, hit that subscribe button wherever you are and leave a review so more people like yourself can find the show and help me grow the podcast. And with that, I'll see you in the next one.